Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With both a spoiler and spoiler-free analysis, there's something here for everyone. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Hello, welcome back to Becoming Buffy. This is our fourth episode into season three. How to think about that for a minute, didn't you? <laughs> I know. I was like, hmm. Well, I feel like we just started season three and then I was like, oh, we're like a few episodes in. Um, this is our non-spoiler section. So we'll be talking about everything that has to do with this episode and coming before this episode. I particularly am really excited to break down this episode. I feel like this one gets kind of overlooked. Yes, it gets very overlooked in season three. And to be fair, season three has phenomenal episodes. I think people tend to lump this in with what's the one with Oz in season Phases. two? Phases. And like, baby girl, two totally different spectrums of episodes. Mm-hmm. I think Phases is pretty good. It's not my favorite. But like this episode, I think there's some aspects that are similar to phases, but they do it way better in this one. I heard recently that some people don't really like this episode, and I just think I'm just so shocked by that. I don't understand why. I don't understand why like this one doesn't really get talked about. And if it does, people are like, yeah, it's an episodic episode. That's pretty much it. I'm just excited to talk about the metaphors. I'm excited to talk about the characters they bring in this episode, mm-hmm. how it's done. Mm-hmm. Some specific scenes are really beautiful, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Some like inner dialogue gets like pushed to the surface, which I always love in Buffy. I think those episodes where things are pushed to the surface, especially through Buffy, are the best. I just think it's very well done and and I'm excited we get to like kind of give it a little bit of uh, its due diligence by trying to at least in this podcast by talking about it just because I feel like no one really does. So yeah, it's interesting as we're dissecting season three, I'm realizing that Dead Men's Party is not as bad as I thought it was. Simply mm-hmm. because I've always viewed it as Buffy's trauma is pushed to the side, which it is in that episode. But I think that's kind of the point. I'm recognizing and realizing that Buffy's trauma is being dealt with little by little. And it was really dealt with in Faith, Hope, and Trick. And it's really dealt with in this episode too. I'm not going to say it's done perfectly, but I think that it's really, really cool to see that there is care and intentionality in specifically Buffy's trauma and that they didn't just lump her trauma in, or the resolution of her trauma in with the the Scoobies in Dead Men's Party, or not the Scoobies trauma, but like they didn't deal with um, the Scoobies anger and Buffy's hurt all in the same episode. I'm glad that they're giving Buffy the time and the attention that she requires, and they're splitting it into multiple episodes. And I think that gives me a better, or it, it at least helps me to not be so critical of Dead Men's Party. I will say, speaking about brushing over people's trauma. This episode made me realize how little we are given of Giles mourning Jenny. Yes, yes, And yes, I'm yes. very mad about that because, like, we've talked a lot about how we feel that, like, Buffy is not given the time of day. And I still agree with that. But it's like this was the first time we've heard Giles talk about Jenny in forever. Mm-hmm. And the way he talks about her is very much like, oh, I'm over it now. But it's like, when? 
when did you get over it? We never saw it. Mm-hmm. We never mm-hmm. saw it. And it's like, I get the show is more about the the teenagers, but it's also just like, we want to know Giles's pain too. I think when it comes to the show Buffy, I kind of have to look at it and remember that one of the reasons why Buffy's character is so loved is the fact that they put so much effort and time into really dissecting the psyche of Buffy um, through different characters, through episodes on episodes, um, metaphors, really putting Buffy through the ringer, giving her so many opportunities to show who she is. Um, And since she's so interesting, it really works out. But I think one thing I've always had to kind of mourn and tell myself is that since they do that, usually most other characters kind of get sidelined when it comes to rough things, um, specifically when they're having to deal with it. So they'll give like side characters a lot of stuff, but then they'll just not really give it its time in healing or fleshing out their storylines or um, things like that. And I think one of the biggest grievances in the show is just Giles in general. I just think like, especially up to this point, it's like, okay, we know he has a ripper past. Can we see more of that? You know, uh, can we have some flashbacks like we did with Angel? Can we see more of that in his relationship with Buffy? Like maybe add some tension between his like ripper like instincts and like Buffy's moral compass. I feel like there's just so much they could have done with that. Yeah, I think I'm recognizing with Giles in particular that they often use episodes like this to have him mirror Buffy. And so when they have a moment where Giles talks about how he dreamed of saving Jenny, I think they're supposed to show through Buffy what Giles went through. We see that in I Only Have Eyes for You when he's talking about, you know, trying to save Jenny, when he's talking about mourning her and forgiving and moving on. I think that I it's not my favorite way. I, I wish we could have actually seen it, but I do think that we are supposed to kind of understand where Giles is at based upon his interactions with Buffy and what's Buffy and what Buffy's going through. So at least there is that. At least it's not oh, we're left guessing all the time. I think there is instances where we get little glimpses into what he's thinking. But I agree with you. I wish I wish we could have seen that. I think that would have been really impactful. But I think that also speaks to the show's overall lack of addressing healing necessarily. I think that they show trauma really well, but there's not a huge – there's not a bunch of healing. Um, in answer to your question, Tabs, about why people don't really like this episode a lot, in – my conversations and in looking at what people have to say about the episode in general, I found there's two main things and main reasons why people don't like this episode. The first is that it hits a little too close to home. This is one of those Buffy episodes where the metaphor is in your face. It's not very subtle. Um, And I think that it does a good job with the metaphor. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Um, And so I think for some people who have been in abusive relationships, this episode is just very hard for them. And then on the flip side of that, there's people that are like, oh my gosh, that the metaphor is too much in your face. And so I didn't feel like it was very realistic. And those are usually people who haven't been a part of abusive relationships. Um, And then the second reason is because a lot of people feel that and this kind of goes along with the first one, that the metaphor is too much in their face. So it's not as layered and not as subtle. And so a lot of people like to have to really dig for their metaphors. um, And so they don't like that it's more on the surface, which I think is at that point just a preference thing. 
But I agree with you. I think this episode is underrated. I, I think it's kind of the TED of season three. I think for me, I always gravitate, and I've always been this way. It's very weird. I always gravitate towards stuff that's really rough and really hard to swallow just because I think that's interesting and realistic. I myself have not gone through a physically abusive relationship, but I think that like it's important and it helps me to like maintain my like empathetic nature to watch this and be like, you know, people go through this. And I I love kind of dissecting and seeing um, what other people go through just because I think it's really, it's real and it's hard to watch. But I, I rather watch that than something that's like void of anything deep. And there are moments for that. But I think that if I were to pick one, it'd probably be the one that's a little bit harder to watch, but well done. I like the fact that it's in your face only because some people watch a show not knowing it's metaphoric. And so when they watch this episode, they're like, oh, they can see it. Whereas like I've talked to people who have seen the show and they didn't even know that it was like, it kind of symbolized a lot of things. And so some things went over their head, which is totally fine. Like there's different different demographics who watch the show. But I like that this one's a little bit more upfront because I think the whole point is that it's ugly and it's gross. And I like that it's not hidden. I like that it's like really supposed to make you uncomfortable and really out there because it's something that really damages people. And so I think if it wasn't done in metaphoric ways, I don't think it would have hit as hard. I don't know how they would have done that as well, in my opinion. So it's really interesting people have that opinion that it's up in their face, but I think that it adds more to it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I I was going to mention this later, but since we're talking about it, I'll mention it now. Um, I was reading a review and they talked about how, you know, unlike most metaphors in Buffy, this one isn't well masked. And they gave a really good point. They said, nor should it be. When dealing with an issue like abuse or loneliness, I feel like the audience shouldn't have to try and analyze what the message of the episode is. It should be obvious because there's no gray area in such a negative issue. And I 100% agree. I think when it comes to this kind of issue, nuance is appreciated, but we should definitely know where you're going and we should definitely know that it is wrong because it can be really dangerous if we don't know what's happening. Not to mention, I think it's very obvious in an episode like this that abuse can be very confusing when you're in the middle of it. I mean, even Debbie was experiencing abuse, but she was so manipulated into kind of preferring the abuser's emotions and feelings that she just like, you know, unfortunately went into that mode of protect, protect, protect. And I think that it's so sad but it's good to see that on screen because then it's like, then you know, oh, abuse doesn't always look like A, B, C, and D. Like abuse can look like love. It can look like someone caring for you, all this stuff, but it's still abuse. This episode actually um, had a PSA after it was originally aired that said, hey, if you or someone you know is a victim of abuse, here's where you can get help um, and how to spot it if you are a victim. Um, or if you, someone, you know, is a victim, which I think is really important. Um, and I think is much needed, especially with, you know, the almost, I won't say graphic in the sense of like bloody, but I mean, I feel like this episode kind of gets pretty deep in showing us like not only verbally, but physically and even emotionally and showing like how catatonic Debbie even becomes like she just, she doesn't know how to function at a certain point. So I think it's so important. But okay, season three, episode four, Beauty and the Beasts, was written by Marty Noxon. 
of course, directed by James Whitmore Jr. I feel like this is totally the type of thing that Marty likes to write about. She is very good with writing damaged relationships. Um, aired October 20th, 1998. It was almost named All Men Are Beasts, which I'm very glad that they did not go that route. Um, I've noticed that in Buffy, they tend to kind of go for certain fairy tale and lore type um, themes in episodes. And this episode is the Buffyverse version of Jackal and Hyde, which I thought was kind of cool. Obvious themes of abusive relationships. Um, but this I thought was pretty cool. So the episode is entitled um, Beauty and the Beasts. So fairy tales were originally created as stories for children that would give them lessons in morality. Jack Zipes write this in his 1983 book, Fairy Tales as Myth slash Myth as Fairy Tales. Fairy tales do not become mythic unless they are in perfect accord with the underlying principles of how the male members of society seek to arrange object relationships or object relations to satisfy their wants and needs. The original version of Beauty and the Beast was published in 1740 by French novelist Gabrielle Suzanne de Villeneuve. Probably butchered that, but I do not speak French. My apologies. But the famous adaptation for children was abridged by Jean-Marie de Beaumont. In an article for The Atlantic entitled Marrying a Monster, the Romantic Anxieties of Fairy Tales, the author quotes Maria Tatter saying, The story of Beauty and the Beast was meant for girls who would likely have their marriages arranged. Beauty is traded for her impoverished father for safety and material wealth and sent to live with a terrifying stranger. De Beaumont's story emphasizes the nobility in beauty's act of self-sacrifice while bracing readers. She explains, for an alliance that required effacing their own desires and submitting to the will of a monster. So the story was originally written to tell girls in a time when arranged marriages was a thing, hey, you might be married to a guy that is super ugly, super old, not very kind to you, but if you submit your own desires, and you basically give up your identity, you will have a much happier marriage. I know. because That's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking, but they're essentially trying to find a way to make girls' quality of life better in a time where they basically were forced into these marriages. And that's why this was written, which is very dark. Um, the classic story of Beauty and the Beast is all about a woman who falls in love with a beast and uses her love to transform him. We see this in an extreme yet realistic sense with Debbie, who thinks that her slash their love will change and save Pete. In the story, Beauty sacrifices herself for her father, saying, I would rather be devoured by that monster than die of the grief that your loss would cause me. In the Atlantic article, the author concludes that her actions inform readers that to save, I use that in quotes, their own families by entering into marriages is noble while preparing them for the prospect of embarking on their own acts of self-sacrifice, which I think is really interesting because even though obviously we don't do arranged marriages now, let's think about today in 2021 and even back in the 90s, how there's this purveying sense that has trickled down. I mean, it was hugely popular in the 50s of women's worth is in marriage and in serving their husband and stuff. And I mean, I totally believe in self-sacrifice on both sides. I believe men and women, it should be an equal partnership where both are serving the other person, but it shouldn't be to the effect of like, okay, you're my slave and you only always serve the husband and he like 
does absolutely nothing and he abuses you. Like I obviously think that's wrong. But then also being being void of your own personality yes. and like in order to please right. and make it kind of have this fake peace in a relationship. Be like, I'm going to reject everything that makes myself unique and mm-hmm. powerful and amazing on my own in order to make our re- relationship afloat. That's so unhealthy. Yeah, 100%. You know? Yeah. That's not love, you know? Um, and that's touched on in this episode. But I think it's interesting looking at We've come a long ways, but in a lot of ways, we still kind of haven't. There's this purveying sense of women losing themselves in a relationship, in marriage, um, and this sense of like, I can change him. My love will change him. And oh, I know he's a bad guy, but he loves me. He means well. And so it's different, but it's also very much the same mentality as all the way back in you know the 1700s. As Pratt warns Buffy later, losing oneself in love is actually dangerous. Love masters you as you become lost. And we see this in an extreme version with Debbie. From literatureessaysamples.com, the Beauty and the Beast tale is a part of the genre called animal bridegroom fairy tales. <laughs> they tend to focus on the transformative power of love specifically. I mean, you think of um, the Princess and the Frog, and I know there's more, but I cannot remember them. Literature essay sample says this about the themes of the classic tale of Beauty and the Beast. They said the woman in each tale are at first repulsed by the beastly men who symbolize the primal and sexual aspects of human nature. The women must see past the men's exterior to experience and accept the joy of a sexual relationship. They talk about several different fairy tales such as the Frog King and the Pig King and compare them with Beauty and the Beast saying, Beauty and the Beast is the most tender tale even though he is the most aggressive. He is actually the most patient of the male suitors in the old tales. The meaning of Beauty and the Beast and perhaps what ensures it as being the most enduring tale that we all know is that its message is that of patience and tenderness. By waiting for Beauty's feelings to change, the Beast ensures that she loved him of her own volition rather than forcing her. The tender way in which the characters interact creates a lasting bond based on mutual respect rather than passion or necessity. So obviously there's still problematic things in Beauty and the Beast for sure. But out of all the fairy tales, it's considered one of the best because the beast actually wants Belle to come and love him of her own volition. And I think we see mirrors of that in Buffy and Angel's relationship and even Willow and Oz's to a certain extent. Being the beast, objectively, you're like, how the heck does this work? But especially the cartoon, what makes the relationship work and healthy, ironically, is the fact that the beast, you see him changing on his own because he sees the good in bell and i think what a lot of girls and even myself at one point kind of like led into this like idea where it's like you you date somebody or whatever and then you're like oh they're not very great but like if they love me he won't do those things because he loves me and that's not the point the point is that somebody is going to work on themselves and be better because they are aware that other things hurt other people and that um, because of what he does affects people around him and he's working on himself or, or it could be other way, or the other way around. Obviously, it's not just males. I'm just using an example of myself or whatever or people that I know. Um, it's not that he loves you and that he is nice to you because he loves you. That's not the point. 
Um, because it's like as soon as he's mad at you or years from now when your relationship isn't as perfect in the beginning, he's still going to be the person that he was. It's like a fake fixing. It's got to start from the inside. And so I think the whole point of Beauty and the Beast is that he had to learn to love. I like that they kind of titled that just because they're kind of showing like how dangerous that idea can be just because like I've seen this happen by with so many people. Um, and I think you have to can really go through it to come out and be like, oh, shoot, like I can't fix somebody. That's not up to me. You know, my relationship with somebody isn't going to make them a better person. Um, I think that loving someone can help grow you, but it's not the relationship itself that fixes someone. And I think that's a really unhealthy idea of something. And I think we have to remember not to throw something out simply because it may have like a wrong message and it's not perfect in its message. I think Buffy is a good example of that. You know, obviously with Joss Whedon and stuff, it's like there are still good things to take out of Buffy, even though Joss may have been problematic. Mm. And I think the same thing with Beauty and the Beast too. Like it has a good message, even if some of it is also problematic. But yeah, no, I, I I just thought it was really interesting researching all of that and being like, oh my goodness, like I didn't know the history of fairy tales. And yeah, and I think that it plays in very well to this episode. I think it also describes um, Angel in how he shows strength of character and patience in getting out of the hell dimension. Um, and then through the episode, there are contrasts between Willow and Oz and Debbie and Pete to show how the former couple, Willow and Oz, view each other as equals versus Debbie and Pete are in an abusive and possessive relationship. You're watching Willow and Oz care for each other over and over in the episode versus Debbie and Pete. It's very much Debbie doing all she can to make Pete feel better, even as he's the one abusing her. That actually makes sense because I did note – I was like, wow, we see a lot of Oz and Willow in this episode. Not that I'm complaining. I love them. But I did notice that it was more than usual. And it's also kind of nice to be like, hey, there's actually like an episode featuring Oz's werewolf side because I feel like, you know, we had that one in phases and then we haven't really addressed it since. So I think it's good that they brought it in. I'm a little bummed they didn't go deeper with it because I feel like it's just kind of maybe – like one layer above phases. I feel like it kind of rehashes some of the same things, but I think the episode ultimately isn't really about Oz, which is kind of a bummer. It's about Buffy and Angel, you know? So the big question of this episode is it's asking us whether Angel will choose to be redeemed and whether Buffy will let love be her master or be lost in it. And all I kept thinking when I was looking at this episode is, man, Buffy's had a really rough go of it so far. I feel like season two was when she was bad and then boom, okay, we're back to normal. And it's just like, okay, everybody in the gang is having a rough time. It's like, no, Buffy is really going through it right now. Also, I think this is a very clever metaphor to bring up as Angel's coming back because the metaphor of Buffy and Angel's abusive relationship, even though I'm not saying their relationship is abusive, but the metaphor of it all has been around since season one. And obviously surprise and innocence really touches in the, on that with Angelus and stuff. So I think that it's fitting that the episode he comes back is going to be all about trying to fix an abusive ex. Okay. Let's jump in now that we're like 30 minutes into our podcast. <laughs> Let's wrap that up. Good job, guys. All right, so we start off with the view of the woods and a voiceover of Buffy. She's speaking a passage from Call of the Wild. Um, and did you guys read Call of the Wild in school? Nope. Nope. Okay. So 
Really fast, Call of the Wild is about a sled dog named Buck who used to lead a privileged life, was kidnapped and forced to become a sled dog in Alaska and has um, one master that's really kind to him who ends up dying but then ends up having many, many abusive masters and he basically has to fight for survival and dominance. And by the end of the book, he's become a legend and he's become wild. And realizes he has very little in common with um, a domesticated life. Um, There's themes of perseverance, suffering, loyalty, and the conflict between the wild and civilization. So we have Buffy reading this, and then it goes to Willow reading to Oz as he's in the cage. And... (laughs) At first, I was like, whoa, this can't be Oz because the werewolf looks nothing like the werewolf costume we saw in Faces. Completely (laughs) different. Do you guys like this one better? It changes every time. Oh, one of the grievances of um, a 90s show is anything to do with like non-human stuff. I feel like they do a good job with demons, but then it's like werewolves. I'm like, I feel like this one is not as bad as the first one that we saw. I actually think I like this one either the best. This one's my favorite costume. It definitely looks the most werewolf-like. I just hate that they make them all like Chewbacca-ish. Like, why are they so hairy? They, um, the makeup people actually affectionately dubbed this look as the gay possum look. (laughs) Please. It's a little odd, but I will say the good news about this costume versus the other one is you can actually see the mouth moving and it it doesn't look so man-like. I don't know. It looks more like a monkey. I don't know. I'm not a fan of it, but at the same time, I don't think it really matters because it's such a small part of the episode. So Willow is reading the passage to him. Xander pops in and is very clearly not fit to take over. He keeps yawning. The dude is like spacing out as Willow's trying to give him instructions. I don't know if I would have trusted him with watching Oz. And then they have this conversation about why Willow hung towels up as a privacy curtain. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I felt like there was a little like twinge of jealousy on Xander's face when Willow was talking about how far they've gone. You know, it's actually interesting I don't think it was jealousy over Willow. I think that it's jealousy that Willow has gotten farther than Xander. Oh, what makes you think that Xander's gotten because hasn't gone that far? I don't. I don't know. It's all we've seen of like Xander and Cordelia is the fact that they've made out, and um, like Willow has at least insinuated that her and Oz have gotten farther, and his reaction was much more of like a. Like, wait, what? Like, how far have you gone? Almost like a, wait, how are you, as gross as it sounds, quote unquote, beating me? Hmm. So you saw it more of like a competition thing. I don't know. Yes. See, there's there's a couple of things that, I mean, Becoming Part 2 has a couple of loose threads that it really needs to kind of wrap up. And one of those was Xander telling Willow that he loves her. And I know you guys don't see that as a romantic type love, but I'm curious if they're going to address that because- I felt like there was a little something in the way that he looked at Willow, but I'm notorious for reading into things, so it could just be me too. Um, To be fair, Willow does not look very confident in leaving the gun stuff with Xander, and the dude immediately picks up the book and then just goes and lays down on the table and goes to sleep. He doesn't even try. Like, useless. 
So then we get a cool shot of the graveyard. Faith and Buffy are out patrolling. I absolutely love that the shot that they used initially of the cemetery is most definitely not the shot or most definitely not the cemetery that they're walking through because that's the back lot and we know it doesn't look like that, but it's still kind of cool. Faith asks if Buffy has ever caught kids having sex in the graveyard. And Buffy mentions the woods from phases, which I thought was a cute little nod. There's a couple of little nods in the beginning of this episode that refers to other episodes in season two. Uh, They talk about Scott. And okay, what was your guys' thoughts on how Buffy refers to Scott? Do you guys think she's really into him? I think the way she talks about him is very much like a high school crush. It's very much like, Oh, he's cute. He's sweet. Blah, blah, blah. There's no like passion. There's no like, oh my gosh, he's so hot. Like, I'm really into him. It's very much like he's so nice. I feel like I should be more into him than I am. He's my cute little blueberry muffin. <laughs> I, this is coming from experience and how I viewed other people. I've learned that if I'm not into a guy and people ask me like, oh, you guys are dating or whatever, I usually will kind of put it in terms of how long were we've been together. So I'll be like, oh, it's only been a few dates. So I'm like mm-hmm. trying not to put pressure on the situation. Mm-hmm. And so for her, she's like, oh, it's only been a few times. Like, you know, like it's, she's trying to downplay it. Yeah. Like even though it's like I've, you know, been going out with this dude for two months. You know, I should know at this point if I like him, you know? Um, like I've definitely done that before where it's like, oh, we've only, you know, and I'll be like, we've only come out gone out a couple times. Or like we're we're just like, you know, in the beginning stages. Or like, you know, things like that where it's like you're trying to like not make it seem like a full fledged relationship. And at this point, Buffy probably has been dating him for like two months at this point. Yeah, I don't know if it's two months because at this point it's supposed to be set in October and the first week of school I think is when Scott first approached Buffy. So it's at least been a month, but it's long enough to where you're like, she should kind of know whether she likes him or not. They've at least been on one date, you know? Um, It's interesting the script mentions that Buffy is supposed to kind of look away dreamily as she's talking about Scott, but I did not get that from Sarah Michelle Gellar's performance at all. I felt like she was talking about him as you would talk about like a comfortable sweater. Like he fits nice. He's cozy. He's safe. That's one of the biggest things. He's not a hell beast. Um, And it's just, it's amazing how, like, obviously there's probably a directoral guidance in there as well, but the way that the actor portrays things makes a huge difference. And then we have that iconic line from Faith, which I'm really curious about your guys' thoughts on that. She says, all men are beasts, Buffy. And she says, it's not cynical. It's realistic. Every guy from Manimal down to Mr. I Love, the English patient, has beasts in him. And I don't care how sensitive they act. They're all still just in it for the chase. I mean, I don't agree with Faith. I think that Faith is very – I understand Faith a lot, and I think she's been hurt so many times that she just generalizes to protect herself. And so she'll say, oh, like, everyone is like this. Everyone is out to get me. Everyone has evil intentions, blah, blah, blah. Which, if I was a slayer, I'd be doing the same thing. Mm. Um, Because I I think that ultimately, like, I think it's unfair to say that every single person is like this. Um, Or every man. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I don't think it's fair to say every man is like this. But I do think that Faith is doing this as a way of protecting herself. And she's trying Mm. to protect Buffy, too. Hmm. That's a really good point, Leah. She can also have something to blame too. <laughs> oh yeah. It's not me, it's them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people who have a lot of inward turmoil tend to try to bring out the 
I mean, lack for a better word, beast and everyone else because they don't want to feel alone. And when that happens, they can say, I was prepared for this. I knew this. Hmm. You know, I feel like it's easier to kind of project. And then when you see anything like that, I'm not saying this is healthy, <laughs> but anytime you see something that kind of affirms that, then you don't feel crazy. And so I think that's what she's doing. Yeah, that's really insightful. Then we see a man being chased by something in the woods and being dragged away. Um, and then at school, apparently something that Faith said really stuck with Buffy because now Willow and Oz and Buffy are talking about it. Um, I think it's kind of neat that they have both Buffy and Willow being like, no, we don't agree with that. Um, and Buffy says it's an awful generalization, which I think is important to put because I think that's something phases didn't do very well. I feel like phases kind of veered into um, sexism on the opposite end of being like, well, all men are beasts and in more of like subtext. And I don't think it's good to paint with such a broad brush. Obviously, Oz and Angel are different from Pete, you know? So Scott shows up with his friends. And okay, so normally I don't like it when they shoehorn these characters in and are like, oh, hey, we've known them for forever. And we're like, okay, why are we just now seeing these people? But they do it very cleverly because these are Scott's friends. So it makes sense that we would not have seen them before. And now they're being introduced into Buffy's life. I think it adds a really cool layer to Scott and kind of says something about him as well. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it felt normal. Yeah. I like that they had a little nod to Oz of like, hey, we were in jazz band together. That's kind of cool. <laughs> Did you guys see Willow's face as uh, Buffy and Scott are talking? Willow's all like, oh, look at Oz. Buffy has a boyfriend and she's moving on and I'm so happy for her. And I, I felt like that was a really sweet moment of Willow being very supportive of Buffy. And I think we kind of need more of those right now because we're all still reeling from Deadman's party. I will say too, it's so weird to see Buffy like in a relationship like this. That's normal? <laughs> well, like one that A, her with a guy during the day. Be with all of her friends. Oh, yeah. And see just a high school boyfriend. Because, like, yeah. when Buffy is dating Angel, you really get the sense that they're in love and that they're just like two people that have the weight of the world on them, doing what they can and loving each other and bearing the burden. When she's with Scott, she's like a teenager going to high school. Like, it's very, she just doesn't feel like Buffy. I think she feels like Buffy, but. It's a very different relationship than hers with Angel, and I think it lacks passion. Good choice of word. Thank you. Thank you. I was about to say, too, it's it's very it's very nonchalant. Like, I don't think we're used to seeing Buffy in a relationship like that. It's very like, oh, Buffy's in a relationship, I guess. Yeah. It's just very like, like, hi, you look great today. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> Even their kiss was just like, all right, bye. All right, I guess we should kiss now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, and I think those are like very specific and intentional choices. And it's yeah. interesting because uh, Passion of the Nerd talks about how the couples are arranged in this scene is very, very intentional. So we see Pete and Debbie. Pete's arm is over Debbie's shoulder. It's a very possessive type of hold. And then Willow and Oz are holding hands which symbolizes they are equals. And then you have Buffy and Scott just standing next to each other and they haven't quite figured out their relationship yet. So it's very much like a, I'm uncertain. I'm not sure what's going on. But I think like the placement and the blocking of the episode is very intentional. It's really cool. I may be in the minority here, but I actually really like Scott and Buffy's relationship. And I think that they make a cute couple. And I think it's really, really, really interesting to see Buffy in a relationship with someone normal, kind of like Leah was talking about, because obviously I hardcore love Angel, 
But I feel like it is just interesting, especially because Scott is so far removed from the supernatural. Like he's in this episode, but he doesn't know a clue that his friends are even like going through all of this stuff and are part of all of this like supernatural stuff. So I think it adds a really cool layer that we haven't really seen yet. I think I like Scott a lot. I think he's a good boyfriend to her. I just think that Buffy's not really into him. And no, so I think not. it's it's yeah. hard for me to picture him as a love interest for Buffy because I can tell she's not into him. But as a character, he's sweet. I don't think we're supposed to think that she's really into him. I think she's more testing the waters of whether she, or not she wants a normal relationship. So Buffy mentions that she's going to go see the counselor and Debbie's ears perk up and she's like, hey, I've been going to see the counselor too. And the acting between uh, Debbie and the guy who plays Pete is phenomenal. The guy who plays Pete says a lot with just his eyes. And you can tell immediately that something's up with the way that he looks at Debbie. Debbie also sets up Mr. Platt as the villain. Like when I first saw this episode, I legit thought Mr. Platt was going to be the bad guy based upon she's talking about how he gives her the creeps. Even when Buffy enters into the room and he's turned around facing the window, they set you up to kind of be mistrustful of this guy. And I think they do that intentionally because you're supposed to feel trepidation just like Buffy is feeling trepidation when she enters the room. But I also like the fact that, and this is also realistic as well, I've seen this in like friends who have been in very unhealthy relationships, not necessarily abusive, but ones where they feel like they have to like be careful of their significant others like emotions, um, specifically jealous ones. And so anytime they'll talk about any male, they always have to follow it up with something negative because they don't want them to seem like they're into them or like that they're preferring them above the boyfriend in any way. So I kind of always viewed it as like Debbie being like, oh, he gives me the creeps, like, you know, things like that, even though she could tell that she probably really benefits from like going to him. But she has to do that in order to kind of like save her boyfriend's ego, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very common Mm -hmm. thing. But I also noted that like, I don't know if it was in this scene where they were talking about him or the other scene where they were talking about him, like the counselor guy. But Debbie mentions at one point she says, she said, I don't like a lot of things he says mm-hmm. about me or to mm-hmm. me. And it was like, in my mind, I read that as he doesn't like her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't like that. And she, I bet you the counselor told her to break up with him. Well, him saying that she has success issues or um, – yeah, I think that's what he said – it is indicative of a girl who's completely lost herself so much in a relationship to where she no longer has an identity. And so she probably has really low self-esteem and doesn't think that she can make it on her own without her boyfriend. And so Platt was probably speaking to that and trying to encourage her to like make it on her own. And she is in probably a codependent relationship with this guy. So Giles and Xander are freaking out, checking all the exits from the library. It's always kind of fun to see Giles like a little like riled up. I feel like we don't really see him like this a lot. This scene made me mad. Well, a little satisfied, but a little mad. Satisfied <laughs> at the fact that Giles got mad at Xander. Yeah, he yelled also, at him. But also mad because let's put this into perspective. At this point, all they know is that Willow's boyfriend, Oz – has a demon aspect in him that takes over and now has maybe killed someone. Hmm. What does this situation remind us of? Buffy, (laughs) who had a boyfriend, who had a demon aspect in him 
that would take over it and kill someone. Mm-hmm. But when Xander finds out that Oz might have killed someone, not only does he not share some of the blame for falling asleep, he also doesn't care. He's not like, oh my gosh, we need to go kill Oz like he was with Angel. He's just kind of like, eh. Like, wow, I thought you were so gung-ho about protecting everyone in the school when Angel was, uh, you know, the one to kill. Mm-hmm. So it always comes back to just jealousy. It was never about pre- protecting people. That's a really good point, Leah. I think Xander does care, and I think we do see that. But I think that he should be treating it a lot more seriously because if Oz did, in fact, get out and kill this student, Jeff Orkin, then – Xander is directly responsible, you know, because he chose to go to sleep. And I mean, Giles yelling at him in the scene is completely called for. Um, yeah. And that's a really good point, Leah. I hadn't thought of that before. But yeah, again, it's the whole hypocritical double standard of Xander versus Buffy. And it's so frustrating. Xander's over here like two episodes ago. Sorry, I'm still salty about Dead Men's Party. Um, he's all he's all over there, like what you did was selfish. And incredibly stupid, I think is what he said. I don't remember what he said. He said something about being selfish. And I'm like, okay, good grief. Pot calling the kettle black. Or is it kettle calling the pot black? I don't remember. Either way, you know it's what I mean. It's pot calling the kettle black. Okay, thank you. Yes. So angry. Lost my lost my cool. But yeah, I 100% agree. And Xander's all like, yeah, there's no way Oz got out, sees the window. And then he's like, I rested my eyes now and then. And then completely lets it slip that he slept all night. Giles absolutely seething. And how long exactly did you rest your eyes for? Oh my gosh. Oz looks in shock. I really feel bad for Oz in this episode. I think that Seth Green did a really good job of showing, like we don't normally see Oz this shook up. And so seeing him feeling like this, I think is actually kind of like cool to kind of delve a little bit deeper into Oz. So in the counselor's office, I absolutely love this scene. I just love this scene so freaking much. And I will forever be angry that this guy did not stick around because even if he just remained for the remainder of season three, there are so many moments that could have popped up. It just – it felt like a breath of fresh air to see somebody talking with Buffy about her trauma and walking her through something. Buffy felt heard. Someone who's not closely tied and biased with their own – Selfishness. It's something the show really missed. I'm not opposed to people like casualties in Buffy. We get that all the time. But I think it was a huge missed opportunity that he died in this episode. I was like, come on. Like you saw her opening up a little bit. You saw her wanting to like talk about it. Somebody who's not tied to the situation who can give her advice. And then he dies. I'm like, man, can we just have like maybe three episodes where she's able to kind of like decompress from all of her trauma? I was like, ugh. So frustrating. It's also hard too because now it feels like every teacher or counselor or whoever that shows interest in Buffy and actually wants to help her. We saw that in Teacher's Pet. Oh no, we haven't mentioned Teacher's Pet in a while. Oh no, our first season three reference of Teacher's Pet. Um, but you know, you had uh Dr. Gregory who took a interest in Buffy and was like, No, you're smarter than this. And so I don't know. I just wish that we would have had more of this. I think in Joss's attempt to withhold what we actually want, he actually was withholding some stuff that we really needed you to in, in order to have like shock value and make us all actually really care about this death. He had a really huge missed opportunity. 
Um, also, the fact that he's smoking cracks me up because it feeds into what we've been told in the entirety of the season or the series so far is that smoking means a bad guy. <laughs> so once again, we're kind of like, oh no, he's going to be the bad guy. Buffy says, Buffy Summers reporting for sanity, which is the same thing Xander said to Willow when he says, Private Harris reporting for duty. Buffy promises to cooperate, but she doesn't want to talk about her life or her childhood, and she doesn't want to be friends. Mr. Platt tells her that they won't be friends. He says, friends are a good thing. They like you, agree with you, tell you what you want to hear. That's not what you need right now. What you need is a trained, not too crazy professional who will always give you his honest opinion, which I offer you. And we see Buffy visibly soften. She looks impressed. She actually is like, this is somebody that is going to listen to me and not judge me. And girl has been judged up the wazoo. I don't blame her for not wanting to open up. So he tells her that any person who claims to be sane is either lying or not very bright. Everybody has problems. Everybody has demons, right? So the hope I bring you is demons can be fought. People can change. You can change. I think that's one of the most beautiful lines that we have heard in this series so far. (laughs) If anything could ever explain Buffy, it would be that dialogue. Just so sweet. It's beautiful. Like, everyone can fight their demons. It, like I feel like people just need to hear when they're going through something that they can do it, that they're stronger yes. than they think they are, that they're going to make it out of it. And I think this is the first time that she's able to even really even talk about yes. or even open up to the fact that she's going through something. She didn't even have to say anything. He's assuming that she's going through things. So he's saying these things to kind of reassure her that she can open up because she can fight it. And that's that's the way you do that. You don't just like try to pry in information. You start out by kind of giving a little bit of yourself. This is like psychology 101. Giving a little bit of yourself so they feel comfortable enough to talk about it. Maybe create an atmosphere that feels very loose. So him kind of like taking out the bud from his cigarette and then spraying. Mm-hmm. Being like, you know what? We all have our things, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then saying like, we all have demons. So me and you are not that different and you can fight it. We all have demons. I've gone through mine. And so once you create that like mutual, I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. I've gone through things and I've made it out allows her to feel comfortable enough to be like, you know what? I'm going through this A, B, C, and D. Um, and they can have that mutual relationship where he can have a voice in their life. Yeah. He created a safety net with which Buffy feels comfortable enough to attempt talking to him and that if she has to, she can fall and she can get right back up and go again. So I think it's very beautiful. So then he asks her to tell him about why she ran away. She ends up bringing up about the bad breakup. Tell me more about the bad ending guy. Um, and we get a beautiful close-up of Buffy, and this is the moment. This is the moment she decides to let her walls down and decides to tell him. He was my first, and then she just stops. I loved him. And I love that it was just he was my first because he was her first everything. He really was. Um, and he says, changed, he got mean, and you didn't stop loving him, which sounds an, an awful lot like what Joyce says in Passion, where she talks about, you know, how he changed and yeah, once again, mirroring that theme. Well, I was just going to say like what he says right here is one of my favorite – man, this episode really just holds a lot of like one of my favorite either scenes or just moments or just dialogue. And what he says, he says, 
you didn't stop loving him. You know, lots of people lose themselves in love. It's no shame. They write songs about it. And so he's making her feel comfortable being like, this is normal. Yes. People lose themselves in love. Everyone goes through this. The key is not to make somebody feel isolated in what they're going through. Like that's the key and having people own like open up to you to have like a mutual relationship. Like you can't isolate people because then they won't want to talk about things. They won't want to open up and then therefore you lose a voice in their life. And then he goes on to say the hitch is you can't stay lost. So he's giving you a practical mm-hmm. advice. Sooner or later you have to get back to yourself. And he's and then he talks about like if you can't, love becomes your master and you're just this dog. I just can he be my therapist? Like right? he just right? was so sweet and so understanding and it's like Buffy has her guard up and the way that he was able to maneuver her so well and make her feel comfortable in one session, that's impressive. And I love that Buffy feels comfortable enough to ask a question because it's one thing to go into a therapy session to have someone just talk at you and talk to you, but to feel comfortable enough to say, what do I do? And if I can't get past, what happens? I think that that just, again, shows another side of Buffy, a very vulnerable side. And I think it's interesting, like we've heard, Tabby, I think you've mentioned it before how Angel is repeatedly referred to as a puppy or a dog. We've heard it many, many, many times in the series. And in this episode with, you know, um, Call of the Wild, dog equals beast. So essentially Platt is saying that if Buffy can't find her identity and lets love control her, that she's struggling with the same thing as someone like Pete, obviously to a much lesser extent, but someone like Pete or uh, Oz or Angel who can't control the beast that's inside of them. There's like a very similar correlation there of like not being able to control oneself and control and not being able to find one's identity means that you're no better than a dog, which I thought was kind of an interesting correlation. I want to be careful. I don't want to be like, she's as bad as Pete, but hopefully you understand what I'm trying to say. Platt is played by Phil Lewis, who, I mean, this guy had one scene and he kills it. He's best known for playing in the movie Heathers, and he plays Mr. Mosby on The Sweet Life on deck with Zach and Cody. Honestly, okay, so something I noticed in this episode, it's super refreshing that everyone is dealing with the werewolf issue and Buffy's not a part of it because she's in therapy. It feels like she's found normal for once. It's actually really cool. Buffy's over here talking about her issues and acting like a real girl and everybody else is dealing with the supernatural. It feels like a refreshing change of pace. So Buffy walks into the library and everybody just looks so glum. She says, I'm afraid to ask. (laughs) Me too. Cordelia, Oz ate someone last night. (laughs) I will say, okay, so we're, this is the fourth episode of season three. Have you guys noticed that Cordelia has not been hugely prominent in the show so far? And they've mainly been using her to kind of catch the audience up with what's been happening or to kind of state the obvious. And I'm really bummed because I think she could be utilized so much more. I agree. I feel like she's kind of being sidelined right now. And I feel like we need more of her. Yeah, I agree. I think Oz was kind of sidelined up until this episode too. So hopefully Cordelia's episode is coming as well. So Xander goes to explain what's happening. Giles is still very clearly mad at him, explains to Buffy what they think is happening and is distraught. Buffy, it's okay. We'll work together and we'll figure this out. And all I could think was, dang, Buffy, therapy looks good on you. She's relaxed. She's calm. She's like, we'll figure it out. Obviously, that changes once she's like, ah, Angel might be the one that's eating everybody. But I don't know. For a brief moment there, I was like, oh, Buffy's going back to normal. 
So Jazz tells Buffy to patrol the woods. Everyone else is going to check the morgue, and then he's going to research, and Faith is going to watch Oz. Poor Oz. Oh, you're having a Slayer watch me? Oh, good. We're not overreacting. But I love how even when Oz is upset and like for a right to be so, I mean, he, at this point he thinks he killed someone. He's still so kind. He's still Oz. Like he still loves his girlfriend and treats her well. Yep. And I think this is a very clear contrast between Pete and Debbie. When Willow follows him because she wants to comfort him, he doesn't shame her. He doesn't be unkind. He just tells her, hey, I need space. And she gives him space. And I think that is what a relationship is supposed to be. And Willow gently reminds him that the sun is going down and that he needs to lock up. And we have that heartbreaking moment where he tells Willow to get away from him and turns his back to her, which we've never seen before. And Buffy's patrolling in a cute red leather jacket, sees something in the woods and runs into a pants, thank goodness, angel. (laughs) I just want to know how Feral Angel found pants. <laughs> uh, they fight. She knocks him out, and she just looks completely shocked. Poor girl. In the morgue, Willow's on a mission, pulls out tools from her. Did you guys notice her Scooby-Doo lunchbox? I didn't see that. That's cute. Yep. Xander and Cordelia are completely jumpy and grossed out. <laughs> this scene cracked me up. We're doing crime here. You don't sneak up during crime. Willow's cool as a cucumber. She takes DNA samples from underneath the guy's fingernails, checks the wounds, and then she just passes out, which I thought was a nice little moment to put. And I'm obviously not like, oh, yay, Willow passed out. (laughs) But I thought that was a poignant moment to show how much stress Willow is under and how she's trying and fighting so hard for Oz in the mansion. Okay. I never noticed this before, but that was Drusilla's trunk that Buffy got the handcuffs or the – um chains from. Did you guys notice that? No. Why did you still have those? Yeah, because there was a bunch of dolls on top of this trunk. She pushes all of the dolls aside, dumps it out, and you can see like articles of clothing and stuff. I think that was Drusilla and Spike's uh, trunk. I mean, Marty Noxon used to write their relationship back in season two and wrote a lot of like – they were into kind of like BDSM and stuff. And so I think that she, the handcuffs were from Drusilla and Spike. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I love how Buffy's like, yep, I know where to find the handcuffs. <laughs> Faith, man. Faith jamming to Teenage Hate Machine by Mark Ferrari. Hey, I will say she's doing a better job of keeping an eye on him than Xander was. Yeah, definitely more energy. I have no doubt she'd be up all night. Okay, I love – okay, so – any TV show, any like uh, movie series is going to have issues with how they're going to do power or power dynamics. I'm sure you guys have noticed in like the MCU where like people are fighting and someone seems extra strong one moment and then the next moment they're fighting someone else. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought they were stronger than that. I The Buffyverse definitely struggles with this, but I think that they do a really good job generally and overall in kind of very clearly showing the hierarchy of who's stronger than who. And I love that when Faith punches Buffy, Buffy takes a minute to kind of hold her jaw and sit there. And I think it's a reminder that, hey, Faith is a slayer too. They both are very strong. Faith's not just a vampire. So Buffy takes over for Faith since she can't sleep while Faith goes to patrol. Buffy goes through Giles' index cards. Okay, question for you guys. Do you think it was fair that Giles finds a sleeping Buffy and doesn't get on her as hard as he did with Xander when Xander admitted to sleeping through the night? 
A, Xander slept fully through the night. He didn't even try. B, Oz <laughs> didn't get out while Buffy was sleeping. So, yeah, I think it's fair. I think the reason he was mad wasn't because Xander was sleeping. He was mad because Xander slept and then Oz got out. Or he didn't, but he thought he did. And Xander didn't own it. That's what he was mad about. Whereas you know that if if Oz would have gotten out and Buffy was asleep on the watch, she would have had to apologize for it for like five episodes. (laughs) But also, you also have to look at it like case by case. Like we know that Buffy is responsible and if she she would have owned up to the fact that she had fallen asleep the entire night, whereas like maybe like the sun was coming up and she fell asleep. We don't know when she did fall asleep because if the sun was up, then therefore he wouldn't be a werewolf anymore and he would be normal Oz sleeping, so therefore she could fall asleep. Like I feel like it's hard to know which one. Um, but I think the fact that he came in and he knows Buffy's more responsible seeing that Oz was in there, he just assumed, okay, everything's all good. Yeah. Like – she was responsible enough to know when to sleep. Yeah. And we didn't actually see the moment that Buffy fell asleep. So it's quite possible yeah. she waited till the sun was up and then passed out. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. And this moment is really beautiful. And it kind of speaks into what you were saying earlier, Leah, about how, you know, we don't really get to see a lot of Giles's recovery from Jenny's death. And I think this is one of those beautiful moments. I just love all the intimate moments between Buffy and Giles. Like every single one is so poignant. And so meaningful, and it really speaks a lot to both of their characters. I think we get to see Giles's guard let down a lot when he talks with Buffy, more so than with a lot of the other characters, <laughs> at least with Xander, for sure. And G- Giles knows for sure that Buffy is the one that's reading it. She tries to play off that, oh, you know, Faith with her rock and roll music is just reading these weird books. And she's trying to play it off, and Giles, all he has to do is say one word. He just says, Buffy. And you can tell he's like, hey. Last episode, you opened up to me about this. I know you're struggling with this. Like, tell me. Um, And she talks about having dreams about Angel and she has questions. She dreamt that he came back. And Giles admits that he did the same after Jenny was killed and that he saved her. This hit particularly hard this time around because of becoming part two when Drusilla was torturing Giles. She made Giles think that Jenny was alive But not only that, she made Giles think that he saved Jenny because he talks about, hey, we got to get out of here and like we got to get free and stuff. That is going to mess with someone. Can you imagine Giles waking up at night after having a dream and not knowing whether it's real or not because of what Drusilla did to him? Like there is some very clear trauma there, I'm going to bet. And I think something that I kind of saw a lot of people wrestling with is the reason why Buffy didn't feel she could open up to Giles about Angel. And I think it's because of his admission of dreaming about Jenny. Because always in the back of Buffy's mind is this concept and this idea that Angel is responsible for Jenny's death. And so I think Buffy feels guilty with talking to Giles about this because she doesn't want to hurt him. Which... I don't think that it is unwise of Buffy to not share her full trauma of Angel on Giles. Because I do think that deep down there is a pain there, you know? Mm -hmm. Jenny's death is unfortunately tied to Angel. I don't think it's Angel's fault, but he was there. He, you know, he is tied to it. And so I think that it is fair of Buffy to not want to dump that on him. 
And I don't blame Buffy for wanting to like probably take a minute and research and assess the situation before she feels comfortable opening up to people. But there is the very uncomfortable parallel of her telling Debbie later on, like, you need to rely on people. You need to like, you need to be upfront and forthcoming about this. And then she's also hiding Angel. So I think there is a little bit of a, of a rub there. Also, Buffy's comment about how like the dream was three-dimensional, surround sound, the hills are alive. I don't know if you guys remember, but in the dark age, when Giles asks Jenny how she's doing, she talks about how, you know, the hills are not alive and wind in my hair type thing. And I was like, oh man, I wonder if that was intentional to have like a call back to Jenny saying that. So Giles asks if she thinks it was a prophecy. Buffy asks if there's a chance it could happen. Giles says that there's no record of anyone returning. I can't imagine how it could happen or why. And then we find out that, you know, most likely this dimension, hell dimension that Angel was in, it's a world of brutal torture. Time moves differently. And then we find out that Angel would have been down there for hundreds of years of torture. And then we have this really cool moment where Giles says it would take someone of extraordinary will and character to survive that and retain any semblance of self, which is a very clear parallel to Anne and the whole no one and Ricky and even Buffy. Granted, Buffy was not in the hell dimension for very long, but she survived her own personal hell and found herself. And so the parallels between Angel and Buffy are very cool. But I like how even though you can tell Giles doesn't really think there's anything valid to what she's saying about the hell dimension, he doesn't make her feel crazy. He yeah. just tells her like, I don't, I've never heard of that. He's like, you know, and if it was true, these are all the things that would happen. He just is not, he's not saying it like, oh, that would never happen. He's just very much like never heard of it. It's just so kind. He doesn't make her feel crazy. Yeah. No, he's very gentle with her. So in the script, I... I don't really remember hearing this in the episode, but um, in the script it says Buffy's like he'd be a monster, a lost cause, talking about Angel if he ever came back. And Giles says maybe, maybe not. In my experience, there are two kinds of monsters. The first type can be redeemed. And more importantly, they want to be redeemed, which is kind of like a better way of how it's trying to explain like in a relationship, like people tend to view it as like, oh, my love, our relationship mm-hmm. will fix him. And it's like they want, they have to want to be fixed. They have to make the steps. They have to make um, the effort and allow people to love them in order for them to heal. Love does help, but it's not the cure. Um And then Buffy says, and the second type, and Giles answers and says, the second is void of humanity. It cannot respond to reason or love. And I think that these are the people that have multiple opportunities to change and just shut themselves off of any emotion. And it's crazy that as human beings, we have the option and the ability to do that, which is terrifying. But the fact that we as humans can do that and get to a place where like you don't feel anything and then you just keep going and hurting yourself and hurting other people and like not feeling any remorse is really terrifying. 
Yeah, I 100% agree, Tabs. And I think it's very interesting how this kind of goes back to the very definition of a vampire. They're not capable of love um, and they don't want to be redeemed. They cannot respond to reason or love. And I think that the writers are intentionally trying to make a point right here and showing us that we're defining what a vampire is. We're also showing that Angel is different because we've seen in Becoming Part 2 that Angel wanted to be something, that he actually was working towards uh, redemption. And so I think that this little conversation right here is meant to kind of push that forward and show that yes, Angelus is a monster, but Angel is someone that wants to be redeemed and can be redeemed. And we see both types in this episode. We have Oz who doesn't want to hurt people. And we have Pete who actively seeks out people to kill. And I think it's really interesting that Pete, I think Pete has a soul and that actually makes for a really interesting concept because here's someone who's human, who has a soul, but who like they say oftentimes throughout the episode, they talk about how like there's no good in him. Like, But that's why I like this episode because he's not a villain that's like a vampire where he has no soul and like he can only be bad. I like that they have somebody and they did this on purpose Mm -hmm. to show that some people who have a soul choose to be this way and that's disgusting and that's gross. And then they We'll get there, but they'll blame substance abuse. They'll blame other things. And it's like, yes, that can multiply or make things worse, but you are still making those choices. You are still that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I love how they did this episode. I just love that they had somebody that was like, half of him is human, half of him is demon. And he chose to, or beast or whatever. Yeah. He chose to be that way. He chose to steer into the skid, you know? And a lot of it has to do with pride too. Like he could have taken steps to go to a counselor. He could have taken steps to own up to it, you know? Um, there were multiple times where he made multiple steps to be a beast. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the next scene where we see, he talks about how like, oh, I don't need the drink anymore. And he blames her. He's like, oh, you're my trigger now. It's like, no, no, no. Like clearly that's not the case. But yeah, we'll get there in a second. So yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that is the show is starting to delve into an area that I think is really interesting where it's like, what happens if a human, and here's the whole choices thing, if a human is choosing to do evil, to do bad, what do we do? I mean, we aren't fully there yet because obviously there's obviously some sort of like a beast aspect to this guy that makes him not fully human, but he probably but still has a soul. I love how they soul. introduce that. Yes, it's interesting. Which I think is really – the placement of is really genius mm-hmm. just because like we've had a lot of buildup to trauma and stuff the past couple episodes. We've introduced Faith, which is another aspect of being a great – character Mm -hmm. and then they have someone like Pete and you're and then the mirror of him and Angel and you're like oh shoot this person's like actually human whereas like I mean I I don't know if we really dissect what he is but there's like a mirror of him and Angel because I was like half beast half Mm -hmm. human but he wears his human face more than Angel Mm -hmm. does it seems like it would be a natural progression to kind of delve into that type of narrative Mm -hmm. in the show um, and I'm so glad they decided to go into that because they could have not. They could have stuck into the whole black and white ideal. And I think that would have kind of worn off after a few seasons. Um, I just am always surprised that they start out this early. Mm-hmm. And so it really lends itself to a lot of interesting storylines later on in the show. But um, I like that they bring it out in season three because it's like senior year is really when st- life starts hitting you because you realize you have to start making harder decisions. You realize that like – um, 
life after high school is going to be very different. And so I think I like that they put a lot more realistic, closer to home metaphors and situations in season three, because I feel like that's the most natural response. And it kind of brings us into the trajectory of the show. Mm -hmm. Yep. Agreed. So Willow arrives with donuts and it's obvious she couldn't sleep as well. How come you're wakey girl? I mean, this time it's not your boyfriend who's the cold blooded. And then Oz shows up. She's like, jelly donut. (laughs) Bobby asks about the inspection of the body. And this is when we start to see her become a little bit more agitated when it's inconclusive, which is very different from earlier. Um, It's also very interesting that Buffy chooses not to tell anyone that she suspects it's Angel. And I'm torn about this because I completely understand why she doesn't. But I also think it's hard because there's a chance at this point that Angel's the one that actually killed this guy and not Oz. And so she's kind of letting Oz squirm and suffer a little bit. But then I'm also kind of like, is it fair to like get his hopes up in case that, you know, wasn't Angel? What She probably wants all the facts first. I don't know. I feel kind of torn about it. What do you guys think about it? I think it's just like she knows how everyone feels about Angel. Yeah. And she also – I think it's also like she doesn't want to have to tell everyone that Angel's back if she has to kill him again. Yeah. And I think that she's just protecting herself and protecting Angel and ultimately protecting everyone. I think she wants to be sure before she does something like that. Yeah. So in the calf, Buffy is just out of it. Don't blame her. She slept in a chair all night. <laughs> um, she sits down to lunch with Debbie, Scott, and Pete. Again, this is just weird seeing her hanging out with people other than the Scoobies, but I kind of like it. Debbie again mentions Platt saying he's a quack and she doesn't like the things he says as Pete looks at her very meaningfully. Buffy, he definitely marches to the beat of his own drummer. Actually, I think he makes his own drums. <laughs> Um, Scott is so supportive. Like this guy is just a really good guy. He's like, my mom thinks that therapy can be helpful. And then Pete totally jumps in and and insults Scott's mom, which I guess, you know, if they're good friends, that's okay. But I, knowing that what we know about Pete, it was definitely a defense mechanism right there. Scott says, I hope you realize I don't actually know these people referring to Pete his comment about his mom. I just thought you would like me better if I had friends. So I hired them, which I thought was a really funny breaking of the fourth wall. (laughs) The show is all self-aware that like we have to give Scott friends to show that he has a life outside of Buffy. (laughs) Quick, we got to make this guy a three-dimensional character. Give him friends that have issues. There, he's relatable now. And this, okay, what did you guys think of this moment? I thought this was the most pure moment ever. I was like, dang, Scott, you're a catch. He gets booked like, Brownie points for saying this. Oh Very gosh. sweet. Like if anyone ever said this to me, I'd be like, oh, like he's so sweet. He's like, he puts his hand on her knee and she like visibly moves back and is uncomfortable, which I don't blame her. And he says, I wanted to tell you that you look great today, but now I want to raise that to amazing because you didn't sleep well. What the heck? What a gem. Bravo to the writers for writing Seriously. that one. Seriously. What, what a good line. This guy, can can he take the place of Xander? <laughs> can we boot Xander out of the Scooby gang and bring in Scott? <laughs> but Literally. I also like how they're showing that he's very respectful of boundaries. Yeah, right? So Buffy blows him off. Again, I completely understand why Buffy she's is doing this. She's not in the right headspace, but I'm still just a little sad. I'm like, this Scott dude needs to find somebody. And again, feel sorry for Buffy. She's dating Scott, but her heart wants Angel, even though it's warning her that she'll get hurt again. And she's been saying for the past few episodes that she wants normal. And she finally has a shot at it, 
but now Angel's back and she has to choose. Choices. She, she goes back to the mansion trying to see if Angel will recognize her. He snarls and jumps at her and she runs out, clearly distraught, and we see that the supports of the chains are starting to loosen. Dun, dun, dun. Back at the school, Pete wants Debbie to make out with him and pulls her into, is this a classroom, a shed? Whatever, wherever this is, I don't feel like it gets monitored very often because there's like graffiti all over the place. Is it like his creepy like little science lab where he does all his experiments? So they kiss and then we see a glowing green substance in a jar behind her and he asks if she drinks it. So the setup for this episode is really interesting because you don't know who the villain is at this point. We're like, gosh, is it Debbie? Is it Angel? Is it Oz? Like, who is it? There's a lot of misleads. Oh, oh, and then uh, you for a second you think it's the counselor too. I like that it's like all these males that you're like, oh, maybe this person's way. And I think what people don't really understand about this episode is it's not supposed to show that every man has beast in him. It's that like you can assume based off of what you see out of a little bit of somebody and sometimes you can misjudge somebody. But then as soon as you understand them and see what they're going through and seeing their fight of not being that way – they're not yeah. a beast, you know? Like it's it's all about like, again, like what we're saying about what Giles says is like somebody who wants to fight it. Somebody who – and that goes for everyone, you know? Like Buffy has darkness in her that she has to reject. She has so much power in her she has to reject like wanting to maybe control situations or being like the ruler or like the judge of like um, right and wrong. But I like that this episode kind of misleads you and, and you're like, oh, maybe it's this – male that's supposed to be the quote-unquote beast and then you get to know them you're like oh that's not true and so i like how it's the fourth person that's supposed to seem like he's connected and in like a loving relationship and then you see them behind closed doors and it's completely Mm -hmm. different yep i was gonna say i like how it showed that he was still a pushy and manipulative person before he turned into the monster so like while they're kissing Mm -hmm. she keeps being like no no like i want to go to class i want to do this subtly setting up boundaries and he's like pushing her mm-hmm. he's like no 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 like what's wrong with you today like come on it'll be fine blah, blah 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 like not respecting her boundaries and manipulating her into breaking them down and this is before the potion is even brought up so i like how they're showing like it's not the potion that made him evil like he was always kind of a scummy guy mm-hmm. yep and that's really key because a lot of people can blame alcohol for hitting their girlfriend or vice versa, hitting their boyfriend or like drugs or whatever it may be. People tend to use that as an excuse. But before even like any of that even happens, you see subtleties of um, possession and manipulation beforehand, but then you really see it up front before he even takes a sip. And I think that they had to show that the the beast and the person are closely tied in this case because Angel killing him at the end wouldn't be as palatable. Um and I and like even later on, like there are definitely moments before he turns into a beast where he's choosing to be awful. And I like how but specifically in this scene, um, I like that he is not a beast when he's mm-hmm. being horrible mm-hmm. to his girlfriend. Yeah, and that's not to say that someone is suffering with substance abuse and just like it becomes an addiction because I do think there is that line that does get crossed where it does become an addiction. But I think in this particular instance, they're very clearly showing that maybe it started off with substance abuse. Like he used to be really bad on 
like while he was drinking or whatever, we'll say alcohol because I think that's the metaphor here. But now they're showing that it just he's bad even without the alcohol, you know. Um, so guidance office, oh, this breaks my heart. Buffy just comes right in, says that she needs help. She asks him to listen, to not turn around. She's afraid that he will think she's loony bin material and says that there's no one she can talk to because they're going to think that she's crazy. She says, not even Giles. I just need to talk to someone. I'm so scared. She sees the cigarettes burned down. We see that Platt is dead. Ah, uh, it this is so sad. What a beautiful performance, though, of Sarah Michelle Geller. The tears that you see just sitting in her eyes. She's not allowing herself to let them drop, but she's at her wits' end. Oh my gosh, how did Sarah not get an Emmy? Like, I really <laughs> just it makes me so mad. Like, this is such like a random episode, and yet she puts her all into a scene like that where you like you can. You can feel the tension in her the whole episode and then she kind of relents in this scene and you see her just like breaking and then having to click back into like slayer mode as soon as she sees oh, that the counselor is dead. Part. It's just – it's the You see worst. this vulnerability yes. and then the walls just go back up and mm-hmm. I'm like, no. Because she has Ugh. to do her job. Yep. Gosh. Mm-hmm. I mean that's, that's what we love yep. about Buffy is that she gets back up and fights but it's so hard to see her yeah. have to completely shudder her emotions. You want her to be able to release. You want her to be able to have like a place in her life where she can relent a little bit, that she can feel safe. And it's sad that it's like stripped away so soon. But man, her performance in that scene is just like, she's like, I don't know who to talk to. And like her eyes, she's just like trying to really like, you could tell her eyes are like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. But it's like sitting there. Oh, well, and her gosh. even saying he's come back as we pan over to Platt, I think it's mm-hmm. just a really cool um, metaphor there because, I mean, it's obviously a metaphor for the boyfriend is back, but it's like the abusive boyfriend is back as in like, uh, I'm yo-yoed back and forth with this guy. Like I, I want to be in a relationship with him, but then he abuses me, but then he apologizes. So then I get back together with him and then he does it again. Like it's just this vicious cycle. And so her saying he's back, he's come back is supposed to show that metaphor on top of the fact that, you know, Angel is back. Uh, in the DVD extras, it's alluded to that Platt's death was an allusion to smoking being bad, which I think is a bunch of baloney. <laughs> just because someone never yeah. once thought that. Just because someone dies with a cigarette doesn't mean that we're gonna think, oh, smoking's the worst. It's like in nightmares where it's like smoking is uh, smoking kills. Smoking, smoking kills is the girls getting yeah. beat up. Yeah, as she's like taking yeah, a smoke. Right. Yeah, they're like, hmm, how can we get more funding while also, yeah. This it's like smoking is the hill that you're going to die on, not you know, um, someone's trauma is also bad. So in the shed, Debbie says she was trying to get rid of the substance to help Pete, says, you know how you get. <laughs> I like to call the substance, you know, his monster energy drink. <laughs> Very clever, Sarah. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Pete says that the drink doesn't affect him anymore, blames Debbie for why he is the way he is. And Tabs, I think you mentioned this before, that um, it's very, very interesting that we see him being abusive to her before he changes into the monster. It's very imperative that they show that. I think because I don't think that they could justify killing off Pete. And or I don't think the metaphor would have landed as well if he was like when he was beast, he was only that way. And then he was all of a sudden this doting, like supportive, nice character because it's supposed to be like, you choose to do this. You are this person. And it's not 
like the substance that makes you do that. Yeah. Even if it yep. does maybe like change a little bit about it, it's like you yourself are still doing those things and you can choose if if that substance makes you do those things, then just don't do it. You know, don't take it. Don't like allow yourself to be in that situation. You're the reason I started the formulas in the first place to be the man you wanted and you pay me back. How? By whoring around with other guys and taunting me. Oh, so much verbal abuse here. Um, yeah. And he hits her, um, blames Platt for planting things in her head. I think it's very important to note too, that he infers that he killed Platt, which we ended up finding out he did, but he says he did it to isolate her so that she only has him. And I think that is a huge, huge thing that abusers do. They try to isolate the person they're abusing to the point where they have to solely lean on them and it is hugely toxic. Or make them feel like their their only prospect that if they ever left them they wouldn't find anyone else to love yep. them as well or to be with them or to put up with them that's a huge thing mm-hmm. um kind of like making them feel like no one else is going to love you the way that I do meaning like all of your annoying quirks all the things that really frustrate me I take care of them I love you for them but no one else will um so therefore it feels like you have no life outside of that person and it makes you not want to leave. It feels like- And you're isolated. Mm-hmm. And you feel alone. Yeah. Yep. It's a way to keep your control and your power over someone. Um, and then, you know, he goes back to his normal self and tells her that she knows she shouldn't make him ba- him mad. Classic gaslighting. And then asks her if she's all right. And then all of a sudden, oh, she's the one comforting him. Like it is just spot on (laughs) the very picture of a toxic relationship. And saying, you know, you shouldn't make me mad. Oh Oh my God. Yep. Pinning it on her. Because then again, she feels like she she also is the only person who can bring him down. It's this like mutual like back and forth of like – like, oh, she can't leave. Like, he's the only one who can take care of her or understand her. And then it's like, if she mothers him and, and kind of brings him out of him being angry and like, she feels like she's the only one who can carry him through these things. It's like this like stuck, stunted relationship where it's just, it's awful that people feel stuck in these relationships because it feels very debilitating. It feels very like um, paralyzing. Um, I wanted to pause for a second and talk about the actors. So Buffy notoriously has phenomenal supporting actors. Like, I don't know where they find these people, but all of them carry their own. I'm thinking specifically in I Only Have Eyes for You. The supporting cast is just really, really great. And this is another one of those episodes. So um, Debbie and Pete are played by Danielle Weeks and John Patrick White. Danielle Weeks is best known for playing Cousin Quirky on the Weird Al show and has been seen in over 100 national commercials. John Patrick White is known for being in Can't Hardly Wait and Galaxy Quest. So fun fact about the two of them, both of them were actually in the same kids TV series in 1996 called Bone Chillers. It was about a high school called Edward Allen Poe High School, where each week the students confronted monsters that talk about the trials and tribulations of youth, which sounds very much like Buffy. The series would also feature 
Doug Jones, who plays one of the gentlemen in Hush, Vincent Schiavelli, who plays Jenny's uncle, Jim Beaver, who plays Bobby on Supernatural, and Linda Cardellini, who would play Velma on Scooby-Doo with Sarah Michelle Gellar and Seth Green. And they all play different monsters. I think um, Jim Beaver or Bobby played uh, Edward Allan Poe and... Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. There's a lot of Buffy alumni that were on that TV show and those two happened to be on there as regular cast members. And then they got cast as um, a couple. And I don't think that was a coincidence. I'm pretty sure that that was intentional based upon the fact that Bone Chiller sounds a lot like the premise of Buffy of high school as hell. All right, so in the library, Giles says that the monster is especially brutal. Like a lot of attention is paid to how brutal this monster is. Like they really hammer home. This guy is like worse than the worst. Platt was killed shortly before Buffy found him. So Faith concludes that means Platt was killed during the day, which rules out both Angel and Oz. Both Buffy and Willow look really relieved uh, that it's not their boyfriend's. Um, and then they are like, hey, where's Oz? The sun is going down and we have this scene in the courtyard. So Debbie is supposed to meet up with Oz to swap notes and she's trying to hide her bruised eye. The, oh my gosh. Danielle Weeks does a phenomenal job of playing Debbie. Like, I feel like I feel like I've known people when they're trying to hide abuse and stuff, like the embarrassment, how she's trying so hard to like make up excuses and stuff. It's so good. I will say too, like props to Oz for the way he handled this. He doesn't make her feel alarmed. He doesn't like try to bring any crazy attention to it. He just lets her know he's a safe space. Like, and I just think the way he handles it is very, very beautiful. Yeah, he doesn't push her. He's like, hey, I noticed something's not okay when she doesn't obviously want to answer and she, you know, gives him a story. He just says, hey, I'm here to talk if you want to. You know, like he's very respectful and kind. And Pete, ever possessive, sees him put his hand on her shoulder and is like, oh my gosh, he's whoring around with my girlfriend. How dare he? Um, and then in the library, Giles is still trying to figure out the monster. <laughs> Again, is like, it's a depraved, sadistic animal. We're like, we get it, Giles. This is a really bad monster. <laughs> uh, Willow breaks the good news to him. And even Giles looks happy. Do you see him over there like smiling? He's like all glad that Oz is not a cold-blooded killer. <laughs> and then Oz makes the connection that Debbie is the thing in common between the two murders as Jeff was in jazz band with them and they were friends. <laughs> Faith, you mean they were screwing Oz? I don't think so, but he hit her music comp book once, so I can't be sure. <laughs> Freaking Oz. So then Oz is like, hey, I just saw Debbie. She was kind of sketchy and had a black eye. And then Buffy's like, it's Pete. I feel like they kind of jumped these conclusions pretty fast, but it's okay. I'll allow it. <laughs> so then Giles looks concerned because, you know, this is a depraved monster and they all split up. Faith goes with Giles, Willow's with Buffy, and Oz goes into the cage. Okay, what did you guys think of this scene with Buffy, Willow, and Debbie in the bathroom? I think that Buffy is projecting a bit. I think that when she's talking to Debbie, I think a part of her wants to say this to herself about Angel, or at least Angelus. But I also think that Buffy is also very angry because Buffy was forced to make the hard decision with Angel and kill him. And she did it because she cared about the people and she kind of overcome overcame her fear. 
And so to see someone else kind of in the same position as her and like kind of chickening out, she's frustrated because she's like, I had to make this decision. I kind of viewed it as like having to be the person to give tough love to somebody who's refusing to see something for what it is. Sometimes I'm like, oh, she's a little harsh. And then other times I make it, I'm like, you know what? Like she has to like look herself in the mirror. She has to look at the bruised eye and someone has to tell her someone who loves you could never do this to you. And don't allow yourself to get hit in a situation. And she's giving the power back to Debbie, being like, you yourself have the opportunity to not be in that situation. Um, And I think it's hard only because it's like, since we've seen Debbie on the other end, we're like, ooh, but this girl's going through so much. Yes, she is. But she also, as a human being, as a powerful person and a woman, she has the opportunity to not put herself in that situation. Not saying, not at all, saying that what Pete is doing is correct in any ounce. But I'm saying that like, I think it's good that she's putting the power back in Debbie's hand because I feel like being in the situations from what I've heard from the people, because um, again, I've never been in an abusive relationship like this. Um you feel very powerless. You feel very small. You feel very stupid. You feel very helpless. Like all these things I've heard from people. Um, and so I think somebody kind of giving them the opportunity to be like, hey, you have the power. You can make your own decisions. And I have to be aware of that. I have to be aware that like I put myself in situations where nothing can happen. And it's sad that that's true, but especially in situations and in relationships where it's like, this person's hurting me. And although I feel this way, someone has to tell them and kind of like have tough love because clearly like they feel like there's no other way out. And sometimes they forget and they lose their individuality. They lose their own power. They lose the option in their mind to leave. And so I think that Buffy having to be hard on her is what she needed um, I think maybe I wish that the wording was a bit different and maybe I'm just nitpicking, but I think her being a little bit pushy is what's needed, even though it feels uncomfortable, but I think we're supposed to feel uncomfortable with Debbie because we saw what happened behind closed doors. Yeah. It's, it's difficult because I mean, I was looking up what people to say and someone who works with, you know, abuse survivors and trauma survivors and stuff was saying that they felt like. Buffy was harsh in this circumstance. And then somebody else was like, you know, as someone who has been a victim of abuse, I liked it because for the reasons you just said, Tabby, it, it gave the power back to Debbie. I think that again, it's hard because it's like, okay, so we, the writers are writing Buffy a specific way. They're trying to tell her like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like assert your identity because the whole metaphor of the episode is don't lose yourself. And so Buffy is essentially telling Debbie, you have lost yourself and you need to stand up and assert your identity. So it fits with the theme. I think in a real life situation, obviously Buffy wouldn't have to worry about going and chasing down the the boyfriend who's going to go like, you know, maul someone else. But Buffy's right now, Buffy is in a time crunch she has to find this guy. She's a little harsher with Debbie because of that, but also because it fits with the theme of the episode. But I think in a real life situation, I don't think this is the best way to handle. I think the don't get hit. I know what Buffy means, but it sounds a little victim blamey. Yeah. Even though I know that's not what she means. Yeah. I think 
in that situation, that's where like I wish the wording was a little bit different. But I understand yeah. what she's saying where it's like, if this keeps happening, don't put yourself in that situation. That's right. that's what I kind of viewed it as. Like you have the power yeah. to yes. not be with him. You have the power to leave him. You have the power to not be alone mm-hmm. with him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like yeah. I just wish it was worded differently because it it's yeah. like it's it seems the wording kind of seems like, okay, well then, you know, um, don't kiss him if you didn't want him to, you know, rape you. Right. You know, Why are it's you like, wearing those clothes? You know, yes. it's like, yeah. okay, yeah. I can kiss him and consent to that, but that doesn't mean I consent to anything else. You know, like it it the wording seems a little bit like that. Um, but I I 1000% see where she's going with it and what she's trying to say. I just wish it was worded differently. Yeah. And I also want to recognize too that not all victims are able to get out of their abusive situations. It's not as yeah. simple and cut and dry as being able to say, right. hey, I'm asserting my identity. I don't want to be in the relationship anymore. I'm done. Because I mean, mm-hmm. he's talking about how he's taken everybody from her and he's the only one she has left. So she may be in a situation where she feels like she can't get out because she has nobody left. So again, it's nuanced, but we understand it within the context of what we're shown right. in the show and the And this is in every every situation. I want to put that out there. Yeah. Like in this specific mm-hmm. one, she's not living with him. She's not tied to him. Um she doesn't have kids with him. Everything isn't wrapped around him. They're in high school. She lives with her family probably. She can choose not to see him or talk to him at school. She can choose not to hang out with him. You know, like mm-hmm. this specific yeah. situation, she's she has way more power than a lot of other people do. Yeah. And Debbie makes it very clear why she's with him. She isn't like, I'm scared that he's going to hurt me or whatever. And that's why I'm still with him. She says, I'm with him because he loves me because she thinks that he can change or she can change him. So, and like what Leah said earlier too, the idea is Buffy is projecting. Buffy is speaking to herself. It's like her conversation with Anne in Anne (laughs) when she says, Hey, you need to take care of yourself. It's very much of a similar conversation. And then Willow warns her, Hey, like, what are you going to do? Like if Pete kills you, it's pretty much too late. In the script, I think this is really important for mm-hmm. um, for context. It says, um, after Willow says, you have to choose. It's got to be you over him. It says in the script, that part where Debbie was wavering, it's over. Her eyes go cold. She's shutting down, which I think is really important because you need to know Mm -hmm. from Debbie's perspective, I think it's like there's a moment where she's like starting to relent a little bit. And I think as soon for certain people, if you pry just a little bit more, Mm -hmm. people will reject that. And so you kind of have to – it's so hard because you have to really feel out. People are so different. Mm -hmm. Um, If people keep prying, people – will relent. I'm one of those relenting people. People keep praying. I'm like, oh my gosh, fine. Uh, but for <laughs> some people, like maybe Leah, she, if people start like, <laughs> you know, pushing and prying, Leo just like bite back um, <laughs> and like shut down. Um, mm-hmm. I think for, for Debbie, it was like, it was that one more push that kind of made her go cold. And I think we needed to see that in order to make sense why she went back to yeah. Well, and again, it's the whole beauty and the beast metaphor of if when it comes down to you versus them, it's been so ingrained in the woman to be the one that gives herself up for the man. And so it's this idea of once Willis says you or him, she's like, that's it. I, I choose him every time. And that was the last straw. Yeah. Wrong wording, Willow. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Some know, people, right? like if someone said that to me, I'd be like, oh, me. 
you know? But like for her, it's like if she is so – if her identity is wrapped up in him at this point, it's like, well, the two are, you know, married together at this point. Um, yeah. It, she's going to choose him. Yep, yep. I love how she says, what if I am? What are you going to do about it? And Willow's like, oh, no, wrong question. <laughs> As Buffy then just grabs her, brings her to the mirror. And again, this is so poignant because she you can see both their reflections in the mirror. So this is Buffy talking to herself as well as Debbie. Says, anybody who really loved you couldn't do this to you. And then Debbie's afraid that he'll be locked up, says she could never do that to him. Buffy, great. So while you two live out your grim fairy tale, haha, grim, like the brothers grim, two people are dead. Who's going to be next? And that's the question with Angel. First Jenny, then Kendra, Teresa. Does Angel deserve to live, especially without people knowing? And that's the question the episode keeps asking us. Um, so in the library, Pete confronts a pre-transitioned Oz about touching Debbie. Oz tries to warn him away. Pete threatens him. And then Pete tears off the doors and they start fighting. Debbie's gone completely catatonic at this point. She's literally holding herself, rocking, repeating, he does love me. He does love me over and over again. And then this is sad. Willow, I think we broke her and Buffy. I think she was broken before this. That is so sad. Oh, also the poster that's over Buffy's shoulder in the bathroom reads, most women aren't attracted to dead guys, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> so Pete is wailing on a much taller Oz, um, which is hilarious. You can totally tell that it's not Seth Green being thrown around. Oh, this moment is like Oz's time to shine. He says, time's up, rules change. And okay, did you guys notice the graphics in that this That line was so freaking fire. I'm yeah. sorry. No, I was like, it's... yes, give a cool line to Seth Green. <laughs> right? It was cool. And the graphics, I realized that this is the first episode that we've seen uh, a vamp face change a transition in season three we haven't seen that like we've seen vamps in vamp face oh, but we yeah. haven't seen the transition yeah and then so there was multiple transitions in here like it was really really well done like in comparison to like season one where it's like the person's like whole hair changed and everything but now it's just their face morphs it's just the budget went up it's looking really good especially if you look watch it on the dvds i don't know how it looks in the the high definition version because I refuse to watch that trash. Just kidding. LOL. Me watching on only Hulu. The version. <laughs> I know. Actually, I think on Hulu, the first three seasons are fine, but it's not. It's, and it's after and then that. Four yeah. through. So you're good. I'll allow it. Also, it's interesting to note that Oz bites Pete. So if Pete hadn't have died, he would have become a werewolf. Yeah, because that would have been worse. I know. Could you imagine? All right, so everyone, including Debbie, runs into the library. Buffy grabs the trank gun to shoot Pete. Debbie pushes her, causing Buffy to shoot Giles in the back. Hands down the funniest moment of this episode. All right, bloody priceless. <laughs> that, okay, and I just want you guys to note, this is officially the 10th time that Giles has been knocked out in the series. <laughs> Poor Giles. Oz races out the library doors. Buffy tosses the gun to Faith. Love to see Faith and Buffy working together. Seriously love it. Tells her to go after him. She takes on Pete. He escapes out the hall and then in, out of a window and then runs to the shed where Debbie is hiding. And she's like, I'm so glad you're okay. You need to get out of Sunnydale. Buffy knows. And Pete is having none of it. She finally pushed him too far. And he starts to hit her again, tells her she's nothing but a waste of space. 
And Faith and Willow continue to hunt Oz as Buffy runs to the shed, finds Debbie dead on the floor. Um, we cut back between Faith and Buffy. Faith is wrestling Oz. Willow pulls Oz's tail to get him off of Faith. <laughs> oh my gosh, so funny. But also, like, it's really cool to see Willow being so assertive and confident in herself versus in phases when she was really scared to even shoot Oz with the trank gun. It's kind of a growth moment for Willow. I would just be so nervous of him even just biting me. Yeah. Like I would have no problem shooting him with the taser gun because I'm like, don't kill me. But I just would be nervous of just any sort of nip, you know, or even just um, if they bite when they're humans, do you still turn into yeah. a werewolf? I think that's, that's so what happened with Oz because his little nephew bit him. I know, but that's so dumb. Like why can't it just be like when they're a wolf if they bite Wait. someone? Because it's like if you actually bite anyone – wouldn't that put like an issue on things if him and Willow are kissing? Yeah, like biting yeah. lip or like any he just other. Can't bite her situation or any other. Well, yeah. so like, any like, other uh, situations. <laughs> yep, he has to be very careful. No teeth, man. <laughs> man, that sucks. Like, why can't it just be like <laughs> werewolf teeth? You know, not like human teeth. Yeah, <laughs> I was about ready to call his little cousin Jordy Charlie because I was thinking of Charlie bit my finger. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm in dating myself. Do you guys know that that YouTube video? Charlie bit my finger. Of course, of course. I don't know. know. <laughs> Everyone knows that. I I was alive when that video came out. You were there. you were very old. young though, so I don't. But I remember watching oh, okay. it on YouTube okay. when YouTube was brand new. Does anybody remember? Did you guys ever see the Numa Numa guy video? Of my course, I did. Yeah, <laughs> I used to look up on the internet stupidvideos.com. And that was one of the videos okay. on there. It was a website for all these like stupid Just like checking. Just checking. Ones. It was when like YouTube was brand new, but everyone didn't really go on YouTube that much. It was like like the stupidvideos.com. It was like people wiping out and like <laughs> um you know, just like yeah. random stuff. Yeah. Uh, the birth of the internet. All right. So Buffy and Pete are fighting. Pete is beating Buffy, screaming, You're all the same. We hear a growl and they both turn to see a shirtless angel in vamp face and he uses his chains to fight Pete, snaps his neck as Pete was about to advance on Buffy. And I think it's very intentional that they had Angel rescuing, I say that in quotes, Buffy instead of him just coming in and in cold blood killing Pete because it paints Angel in a better light. Um, and it also shows the humanity in Angel. And that he's not just completely like a mindless, cold-blooded killer. Cold-blooded jelly donut. Yeah. I wish we could show this scene on the podcast, but this is one of my top 10 favorite like Buffy moments. It's just so beautiful. In general. I'd get chills every time. Oh, man. And then the scene is just beautiful. But I will I, – before we get into it, I will – I want to note a couple things. So first is Pete reverts back to his human face when he dies which I think is very important. I think it's a reminder that he's human first and foremost, and that as a human, he chose to do these things. And Angel approaching Buffy. Oh, this is so beautiful. Go ahead, Tabs. You can talk about it. This is your moment. Oh, so much pressure. Well, it's just like he kills Pete, and then he looks around. He's still very beast-like, and Buffy's like, her guard is up. She's like, oh, no. Like You can see her being like, Am I going to have to kill him? Like there's so many things that she's going through because she's like not sure if he's just like killing for no reason. And then you see him like walking over. This transition is so smooth from like vampire mm -hmm. to his face. And then he sits there and you can see him like 
fighting saying the word out loud. Like his, he's like brain to his mouth and trying to like execute the word Buffy. He's like physically trying to like force it out of his mouth. And then he like says it kind of with a question mark and then just like drops down like weeping. And she sits there and she's not like touching him. She's just like sitting there not knowing what to do and just like, oh my gosh, Sarah's like different emotions played out in this scene is just so beautiful because she's very like afraid. She's stiff and then she relents a little bit and then starts crying and then you see her like a relief, but it's like a sad relief and like, oh, it's just so beautiful. Yeah, I agree. You really just see her release. Like you see the weight on her shoulders just kind of like dissipate as she just kind of allows Angel to just like mourn. Yeah, the symbolism of him clinging to her, she was his catalyst for getting out of hell. I, I really believe that. I, I think that's what the episode is is leading us to believe is I mean, it wasn't until she put that ring down. It's almost like it was a uh, it was like an anchor that brought Angel back and I mean, this and we we talked about this in the spoiler section. We finally get to talk about it in the spoiler-free section, but this is a very clear parallel to Anne when uh, I already forgot the dude's name when that pastor guy was talking to both uh, Buffy and Anne in the cell and said, you know, he forgot your name long before, or he forgot his name long before he ever forgot your name. And this is a direct parallel. It is Buffy that brought Angel back. It is her name that brings him out of his stupor. It is her name that he remembers even before he really remembers anything else. And so that picture of him clinging to her is him clinging to almost his sanity in a way. He's he's trying to ground himself. Well, I also love like the mirroring. So in Becoming Part 2, it's Angelus who's standing eye to eye with her. And then as soon as he drops down and she's about to kill him, becomes Angel again. And so he's on his knees and she's looking mm-hmm. down at him kind of softening. Mm-hmm. And then in this situation – He's kind of a little bit more beast-like when he's standing eye to eye to her. And then as soon as he drops, he's angel again. And then she releases. It's kind of like very similar. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so beautiful. Like yeah. the fact that he's on his knees both times and he's just like an emotional like anguish. And she's sitting there having to like soften because her walls are up. It's just the the hold the angel has on Buffy. I know I'm biased, but it's like... It's so much in the text. It's so much in how the actors choose to present what the text is saying too. It's like they both just love each other so much and that hurts them. And it, it like it physically has given Buffy so much trauma based on how much she loved him and based on what happened to him. It just comes to head in this episode. If she didn't care for him that much, You'd see Buffy have a little bit more of a callous reaction, but her body just like sinks into her response that Angel's back. And man, I just, these characters are just so dynamic together and they make their storyline in the show just way more like interesting and beautiful. And these moments are just what bring you back to the show. There's also a very clear mirroring of the moment when. Um, in a couple scenes earlier when P 
Pete has been beating Debbie and she's on the floor and he approaches her and then his face changes and then he says, Debbie, Debbie, a couple times. And then he comes towards her and then he starts to say, oh, you you shouldn't do that to me. You know how I get, you shouldn't make me angry. And then he goes to her for comfort and she comforts him. Um, there's a very clear mirror in this of Angel, his face going back to a normal face and him calling Buffy's name, and but then him sinking to his knees and holding, he's the one holding Buffy. And in the other, it is Debbie that is holding Pete. And so I think that is very much a picture of their relationship. It's just, it's a beautiful parallel. So in the courtyard, the gang is talking about how it's all over, school that Pete killed his girlfriend. We have a funny break of the fourth wall with Cordelia being like, where have I been? <laughs> all episode, and we're like, yeah, Cordy, where have you been? Find out that Pete used his lab books to mix a potion to become a super macho guy because he was afraid Debbie would leave him. Ah, so it all comes down to it. insecurity. After a while, he didn't need the potion to turn into a bad guy. And Cordelia, so it was like a real killing. He wasn't under the influence of anything. And yeah, once again, using Cordy to move the plot forward. Buffy, just himself, and she sees Scott sitting by himself looking sad. In a lot of ways, Pete and Debbie were Scott's Willow and Xander. Like imagine people that you've been friends with since before you went to school and they're both dead. They killed each other and yeah. That's just so sad. I know. I felt so bad for Scott in this scene. I was like, regardless of his relationship to Buffy, like, poor guy. Like, you're mm-hmm. two best friends. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my gosh. I kind of wish that they gave him more emotion than just, like, meh. Like, I wouldn't even be at school if that was my best friend's. He probably was in shock, but yeah. Yeah. I do think that it's really cool that they gave Scott this moment because I think – that it's important for us to see that these people actually mattered and they actually affect people. Because I think so often people die, students die, and we don't see the aftermath of that. And I think that that's not how real life actually works. And so Scott, he says, it's just that you never really know what's going on inside somebody, do you? I mean, you think if you care about them, dot, 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 but you never really know. And I think he's He's speaking – I mean, it's obvious that the writers are speaking through him about Buffy. Scott doesn't really know what's going on in -hmm. in Buffy's life and what she's wrestling with. In the script, after he says that, it says, off to Buffy, his words hitting home. Mm -hmm. And then we have the beautiful voiceover. Night came on and a full moon rose high over the trees, lighting the land till it lay bathed in ghostly day and the strain of the primitive remained alive and active. Faithfulness and devotion, things born of fire and roof were his, yet he retained his wildness and wiliness. And from the depths of the forest, a call still sounded. So beautiful. And I mean, we see Angel sleeping tormented as Buffy watches him. And they have Angel sleeping on the floor like a dog. And he twitches like kind of like a dog does when a dog is sleeping and stuff. And so, yeah, it's – it. It's a beautiful episode because we're like, okay, what's next? Now we're going to deal with the repercussions of becoming part two with Angel. How's the gang going to deal with that? Is Buffy going to tell them? Like, there's just a lot going on. And and at the end of the day, Buffy can't fight her feelings. A call still sounded. She still cares for Angel. And she doesn't really know what to do with that. Oh, what a beautiful but really heavy episode. Good job, you guys. Well done. 
I can't believe we're we're kind of making our way through season three. I'm like, dude, like we're still kind of at the beginning, but things are starting to happen now. Angel's back. I'm just excited to see where this is going to go. I don't think I processed that we're like in season three, especially episode four. I think it's going faster just because each episode just gets better and you're like excited for it. And season three is just a treat. And this is like one of my favorites in it. So it's always fun to kind of start out and earlier in the seasons with really good ones because then it makes you like really excited for later on. Yep. Agreed. Well, guys, that was season three, episode four, Beauty and the Beasts. Thanks so much for joining us. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate and review our episode. That means so much to us. We like to hear what you guys think, good or bad. Mostly good, but you know what I mean. You guys can find us on Instagram, Becoming Buffy Podcast. We're on TikTok. We're on Tumblr. Um, you can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. We want to know your guys' thoughts of this episode. Do you love it? Do you hate it? What do you guys think of the metaphors? We want to know your thoughts. And as always, guys, have a great week and we will see you.